Welcome to the podcast of The Urban Mystic. This is season two where we meet with fellow deconstructors, fellow journeymen and journeywomen to hear the story of their first experience of God calling to ministry, deconstruction and present journey. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of season two from Urban Mystic. I'm super excited uh, for you guys to hear our guest today. For me, this was a, a real win in terms of being able to include somebody of this caliber um, from as an international guest in our pool of guests. And so he's in great company in terms of our guests, but it's somebody that I've personally looked up to for quite a while. Uh, and I took an absolute flyer at approaching him uh, and he said yes, and he joined us for some wonderful conversations you'll hear play out over the next episode or two. And that's Brian McLaren from the US. Such a wonderful conversation uh, in amongst all of his work that he was currently doing when he recorded with us around the politics going on in the US. So just so grateful that he gave his time to come and have that conversation, this conversation rather, on his own deconstruction. And we did talk in, in some general ways around church and institution, but yet again, just someone who was willing to key into the personal and share their own story. And that's been for me such a win of this season is, uh, you know, people being willing to share personally rather than we just talk always in the, in the abstract and the theoretical. Um, and so really excited for you as a listener to dig into our conversation with Brian. We, we cover a, a number of different areas all the way from his first story at age four um, through to, you know, we cover almost 60 years now that I think about it, he's 63 now. And just a wonderful, gracious and compassionate man. Uh, great conversation, really enjoyable. If I think of Brian McLaren, I think of someone that is is near synonymous with deconstruction and the deconstruction of the church, you know, who, who for decades now has has really wrestled with the questions around our changing culture and and the, the, the changing questions and issues in our world. And uh, it's just it's just been fantastic to to engage someone that is so forward thinking. And, and yet so grounded and humble, you know, this, this was really a conversation. It, it really felt like a real conversation where, where someone was very warm and present to us. Absolutely. So enjoy. I um, hope it's a good one. This was, the last, um, this was the last recording we did in terms of our actual process of guests. And, uh, and so that was, uh, it was a late evening to sync our US and SA times but uh, really enjoyable. And so I hope you will find it as enjoyable as we did. So let's get over to Brian. So, so just thinking back, can you cast your, your eye back to your, to your earliest experiences of God, the, the sense that you had that God was real, your first, you know, whether it's a mystical experience or an emergent experience, what was that experience for you? And then there's a second part of the question, which for some people is quite linked. And for other people, they're actually, they're completely disconnected. So I'm not sure which book end you fall on when it comes to that but just from there into your sense of calling and your journey towards the ministry that you've done and how that tied together so so your earlier experience of god and then your early sense of calling first thanks for uh creating a format to have these kind of discussions it's so important in, in these times i um i grew up in a little protestant sect called the plymouth brethren it's not well known here in the united states but it might be better known in south africa and, you know, they were uh, very strict people. My parents were probably on the most, uh, you know, relaxed and uh, sort of loving and socially warm uh, end of that spectrum. And I, I don't recall my earliest spiritual experiences, uh, be, but I remember my mother telling me about them. 
first was I have no memory of this, but I always was uh, a an animal lover. And I was a little boy living out in the country and I used to catch snakes and put them in bottles. And apparently one day I didn't put the bottle top on tight and my prized snake got away. And I must have been four years old. I'm very, very young. And so she knew I was upset. And I went looking around through the yard, running here and there. And she said, I stopped and folded my hands and bowed my head. <laughs> so in that phrase, I, pour, I must have uh, prayed. Uh, I, I don't remember that, but she told me. And then uh, we moved to another state. And um, uh, I had a, a friend who was Southern Baptist, and he invited me to his church. And we did not have altar calls in my tradition, but they had an altar call. And I don't really remember going down, but apparently I did because I, I, I think I was five years old at the time. And on the back of a little plaque I had, a little like made out of white plaster, you know, uh, a wall, um, I wrote, I know I'm saved. And, uh, and again, I don't really remember that, but my mother told me that that was on this plaque. So I, obviously I was a firstborn, very sincere family. We learned the Bible backward and forward. And, and I just wanted to be a good kid and I wanted to do the right thing. So I'm sure I did all of those, uh, all of those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, in some ways, I think this is one of the challenges for all of us in becoming adults. To what degree are we just carrying on a faith that we inherited and to what degree do we make it our own? And the process of making it our own or deciding it's not our own, you know, it's a probably a lifelong process, but a, certainly complex. I was super interested in science. And so when I was a kid at our local public library, I checked out every book I could on plants and animals and nature. And I was intrigued with evolution. And you know, uh, for all of those books, evolution made perfect sense. And I remember, you know, in my church, they taught, you know, a very strict biblical literalism. So the earth was created into about 4,000 BC. Maybe you could stretch it, stretch it to 10,000, but it was a very young earth, which made that meant that we were in constant conflict with science. And that it was, you know, literal six days, all that. And I just remember thinking as a, a young boy, maybe 11, 12 years old, my gosh, evolution makes a whole lot more sense than this, you know. I was probably about 14, maybe 13. And my Sunday school teacher, I, I must have asked, I don't remember asking, but I do remember his answer. I must have asked about evolution. And he said, oh, you have to make a choice. You either believe in God or evolution. And I remember mm -hmm. thinking, okay three or four years, I'll be old enough, I'll be out of this place. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that really, you know, I've always taken science very, very seriously. And and, sure. um, and I later became a liter literature major. So obviously that helped me realize that the, the Bible, of course, the category of science wasn't even available back in biblical literature times. So it was all, uh, just all a false uh, choice. But I did have a very powerful spiritual experience mm. when I was 15, 16 years old that was somewhat unexpected and did end up being sort of my way to say, okay, there's something going on in me that makes this thing feel personal and real. I'd be happy to share about that if that'd be helpful, but 
Yeah, we'd, we'd love to hear this. Well, um, what had happened was, uh, again, I had some friends who were Southern Baptist, <laughs> um, and they invited me to a church retreat, and our church didn't have retreats. Um, in fact, I remember hearing a preacher say, we don't go on retreats, we are always on advance. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to say, biblical literalism does not exactly retreat. Exactly <laughs> right. But I went on this retreat mostly because I wanted to meet girls, and at the retreat, uh, and to scandalous, scandalously, uh, the retreat leader was a woman, and she, uh, partway through the retreat, said that there was an hour. She wanted all of us to go out for an hour, no talking, be silent, don't bring your Bible, just go alone and, and uh, see what you want to say to God and see what you think God says to you. And so I went uh, and I climbed up in a tree, which I don't recommend because I had ants crawling all over me and bugs. <laughs> and um, so it wasn't like a very, uh, you know, conducive to a deep spiritual experience. But I, I, I thought, well, what do I really want to say? You know, we always said our prayers and, you know, I was always asking to be forgiven. I mean, any 14-year-old boy who grows up in fundamentalism is made guilty for any sexual thought or feel. So I was always asking for forgiveness. But apart from that, what did I want to say? And I remember very clearly my prayer. I said, I, uh, I asked before I die, I would see the most beautiful things a person can see, hear the most beautiful sounds a person can hear, and, uh, and experience the most beautiful uh, experiences a person can have. So, you know, it was sort of this young artistic uh, teenager making this prayer. And a little later that night, a few friends of mine and I snuck out um, you know, breaking the rules to uh, hang out together on this hillside. And I was laying on the hillside. My friends were a stone's throw away. And I just felt this experience of deep, profound love. I felt that I belonged. I felt that, uh, that I was, my, that my name was known. And uh, I had, I, I won't go into the details, but this very powerful, just, in fact, it was so powerful. I, it filled me with happiness. I started to laugh. I thought I might do harm to myself. I was laughing. I, I mean, I just felt I'm going to break. I was so full of this feeling of joy. I went back after a while to my friends and I heard, they'd gotten into this deep conversation. And, you know, this doesn't happen that much around 15 or 16 year old kids, but they were saying, they were just saying that they loved each other. And it wasn't like, you know, we were usually kidding around and insulting each other, but they were like having this tender moment. And then I felt like, oh my gosh, I might die now because I feel like I've had the most beautiful experience and heard the most beautiful thing and seen them. And it was, uh, but it was just this feeling like from tonight on, something is very different for me. So that was my uh, sort of thing that put me on a different track. So. Sure. <laughs> I really like that mixture of memories that your mother tells that you mm, don't remember and, and that mix of that personal, you know, face-to-face -face kind of experience, you know, that first person experience that you have as well. I, I was just going to say, you know, when you think about it, when we're born, we don't, we have no self-consciousness. We don't even know we exist. Right. And it really is through the love and care of our parents and maybe our siblings that we come into a knowledge that we even exist. And, mm -hmm. and, in some ways, that precedes anything we think about God or religion or faith or theology is whatever experiences bring us into being. And then that process of differentiating as a, as a 
you know, as a human being with his own, his or her own story. Uh, it's a fascinating, delicate uh, process of identity formation. Mm, mm, very much so. I'm, I'm interested if I may ask the, the return home from that retreat back into that more sort of dualistic space. What, what was that like? You know, as you talk about the differentiation of the identity, I hear that in your story as you climbed the tree and as you came back down and as, you know, you went into that small community. What was it like returning home? Was, was there, you know, was it hidden? Was there a conflict that awaited? What was that like as you went back to the usual space? The facetious side of me wants to interject that that spirituality and getting eaten by wild animals often goes hand in hand. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, there you go. E either either lions or mosquitoes. One or the other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before, but I do remember sitting at my kitchen table and I told my parents something happened to me. And, you know, we were very rational and, and we had this sort of uh, formula for how conversion was supposed to happen. And we were definitely not Pentecostal. So we were very nervous about anything that seemed, you know, mystical or extreme in any way. Uh, so I, I told them about this and I think they had a mixture of being nervous and being relieved because, um, you know, I'd grown my hair long and I grew a beard and I was playing in a rock and roll band and they, they sort of were worried that I was gonna get into trouble. So I think they were relieved. This sounds better than me going out on Saturday nights and playing till two in the morning as a 16 year old or whatever. But, um, at the same time, I think, you know, they, they didn't really know what to make of that. So <laughs> in terms of intellectually and that you'd, you'd read about evolution that made sense to you. So in that context, it's, it's the belief for versus the belief against that almost gets contrasted, you know, you yes. got to believe in one or the other. And so, so having chosen the one to have a, a kind of like unitive differentiating kind of experience of God like that as well. How, how did those reconcile within yourself? Well, I'm very glad. You know, I, I was born in 1956, so uh, I was coming of age in the counterculture, you know, late 60s, early 70s. So this would have been early 1970s. And, um, and I, I, I'm very glad that whatever this experience did to me, it did not make me say, oh, my religion is all right. Uh, you know, that uh, it, it, it made me think, uh, in fact, and I'm very glad, I mean, I had nothing to do with this in this sense, but I'm very glad that it was really grounded in love. It was grounded in nature because I, I don't think I mentioned this, but when I was alone, I was just under this beautiful, clear night sky of stars. And it was just the, almost this feeling of, you know, that the entire universe was connected in some way. And so it was, the, it was a unit of experience that involved nature and then it involved my friends. And so it was social and it was personal. It was, you know, uh, uh, sort of cosmic, if you will. And, and so that, um, that, I think, became very, you know, that became like a root for me. And it didn't in any way make me feel that now I had to agree with my church leaders who, you know, were biblical literalists or anything like that. And, and the other thing that was just happening, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm sure it's a different age for each child, but, you know, when you're very young, you're incapable really of abstract thought, you know, uh, you like what even, you know, you learn how to say five plus five equals 10 or five times five equals 25 or something like that. 
it, in some ways you're even then you're you're memorizing things and you don't even really conceptualize very often the abstraction of what you're dealing with. And I, I'm sure all of this was happening when I was also developing that capacity for 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 abstract thought. And and so I'm very fortunate that I never I, I always maybe I could say it this way. I you know here in the, in the U.S. you you get your driver's license when you're 16, so that's right about the age I was. And um, I feel like I kept the keys to my own brain, if I can say it that way. <laughs> yeah, I I I hadn't given some religious authority figure, you know, the keys to my brain. So did that play out then, as you as you sort of start 16 onwards now into? That would be college in the U.S. system, if I'm correct. As you're sort of leaving high school into there and into studies, did, did that play out in terms of the direction that you chose? You know, as you as you started to march forward into life, and then and then where did the call into ministry come? Yes, well, I I was not one of those people who have a powerful spiritual experience and then never have doubts because I remember like you know 18 months later or something, I was a senior in high school. That's year 12 for us, and I I took a philosophy class. There, there was a, a wonderful professor, or not professor, but an a English teacher who decided to offer an advanced, uh, you know, placement philosophy class for high school students. So I was reading Aristotle and Plato and uh, Thomas Aquinas and uh, all these, you know, philosophers. And I remember very clearly thinking, you know, maybe there isn't really a God and maybe this is all just made up and maybe these are all just psychological experiences. So uh, I went through a very deep period of doubt then and, and all through my college years, I felt like uh, I, I believed, mm. but I also questioned. And really that stayed with me even to when I became a pastor, you know, I, mm. I, I never, my faith has never been one that I, I suppose part of my own intellectual orientation, and I'm not saying anyone else should be this way, uh, it's just the way it is for me, but I've always been able to say, I know I see it this way right now, I know other people see it differently, and I have to live with that awareness. And I think I had that all the way through. But um, my, uh, mm -hmm. I, my plan was to be a college English teacher, mm -hmm. and I loved literature, I loved poetry, I mm -hmm. loved fiction. And while my, my wife and I got married and uh, we started a little fellowship group mm. and one thing led to another, that became a, a little church. And I still wasn't planning to be the pastor. We, we hired someone else to be the pastor. And then eventually he came to us and said, you know, I'd really like to be a member of this church, but I think I would like to be in, make social work my career. And we felt like that was probably a good thing for him. And, and so uh, our little group of leaders looked around. I was 26 at the time, I think, and looked around and said, well, uh, you know, I, I mean, we didn't say this, but looking back, I was the one with the lowest salary as, as a, a graduate student. And I think they just said, uh, well, you know, if we matched your salary, would you take over? So that's, I had the lowest salary to match by probably a factor of two or three or four. So, and, and so it wasn't this sense of call. In some ways, I was a very committed person, a very committed Christian before that. And, and I really didn't think through what I was doing. I, so I didn't go to traditional seminary, uh, you know, for me, I, I was deeply interested in theology. In fact, some of my uh, seminary trained pastor friends said, yeah, we got 
uh, the love of theology burned out of us in school. Was this the Cedar Ridge days that you're talking about? So that was a little group, uh, a little home group that eventually became called Community Church. And then eventually we chose the name Cedar Ridge Community Church. Yeah. And, and how many years did that unfold over for you? So it was 24 years altogether. Okay. If I think back to the earlier story you told of your experiences and you know, the conflict between evolution and faith and that kind of stuff, it, it seems like you've always been in a process of deconstruction. But getting into the ministry, especially the, the, the path that, that you walked into it, how did your deconstruction start in terms of this thing called church and the notion that, that, that the world is changing and perhaps the way we do church can change too? Yeah, well, let me say two things about that. First, uh, on a very personal level, I'll tell you how this unfolded for me. And then if it would be helpful, I could add a sort of an observa- a more general observation I have uh, looking back. As I said, I, I was a curious person. And I, I think one of the reasons I was attracted to literature is it, literature felt to me like it gave me the chance to enter into someone else's experience and see the world through their eyes, whether it's through you know, a, po- a poet who brings you into this poetic little, this world of a poem and you see the world through that perspective or the character of a novel or whatever. And so um, I, I, if I'm really honest, I never was a good fundamentalist. You know, I, I always had the capacity to see things uh, from someone else's perspective, but I was a firstborn child. I wanted to be a good person. And I was very oriented toward authority figures. As I said, I didn't give them the keys to my brain, but I was looking for people who had what I needed uh, at each stage of my development. And so I had a, a series of mentors. They were usually a few years older than me, starting when I was about 16, 15 or 16. And I would always go to them with my questions. And I was so lucky that I, that I was allowed to have questions. And, um, and what was so different about these younger mentors, in contrast to the leaders of my denomination, the leaders of my denomination, if you went to them with a question, um, they would quote a Bible verse as if that answered the question. And then if you were to say, well, hold it, what about this other verse? You know, well, that thought never crossed their mind because they had this, you know, blessing or curse. <laughs> Somebody told them this was the Bible verse that answers that question <laughs> and they believed it. Uh, so uh, I, uh, the, these younger mentors, I remember I'd go to them and I'd say, so what's the truth about uh, about evolution. And they wouldn't say, well, Genesis 1 says this. They would say, well, you know, Christians have four or five different ways of looking at that. And they would present me with a bunch of options. And what that gave me permission to do is it, it was my door out of kind of dualistic, mm. us, them, mm. and out, right, wrong. It was like, oh, good Christians see this in different ways. I'm so glad I had those friends. You know, they... they and mentors who gave mm. me that option. And that really was the framework that I started my years as a pastor. But something started to happen um, to me. It, uh, it ha- in some ways it happened because of my graduate school. Um, when I was in graduate school, which uh, took me from the age of uh, 22 to 26, because I, 
I didn't go full time and I was a, you know, I was, I had a, was a teaching fellow. So I was like teaching courses while I was doing my master's degree. Um, but I, it, in literature departments, what we now call postmodern philosophy was just coming into the American Academy through literature departments. Mm. Mm. So we were reading Jacques Derrida and, and uh, Baudrillard and, you know, what, what's now called postmodern philosophy was really a ph phenomenon of literary criticism. Mm. And I remember sitting in a, a class thinking, if this way of thinking catches on, mm. the Christian religion is over. And, and because I was thinking C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer, I'm not sure if people are still familiar with those names, but um, C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer were to me the, the pinnacle of Christian reason and, and intelligence. And it, later I found out that C.S. Lewis actually was a lot more tuned into postmodern thought than I realized then. But uh, uh, I remember just thinking C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer haven't even asked the questions that are being asked by my peers. And for that reason, I, 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 from that point on, I just had a feeling whatever form of Christianity is out there right now is not going to work for people of the future. And in some ways, my life as a pastor was living with that question being open. Does that, does that make sense? That totally makes sense. Yeah. 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 I, I, I love that as well, because there, there's so many people that I know that that, that, that for them, Lewis and, and, and Schaefer, mm, you mm -hmm. know, they still read them to this day. As so. though it, it helps frame the meaning of the existence. And and in many ways, those authors are, I guess, in some ways, the epitome of, of very late modernism. Yes. And it's, it's thinking and 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 with the wrestling in terms of the question that modern people have and bring to the faith. And and so that thing of of postmoderns are asking a different set of questions, and and what people like Lewis and Schaefer offer is so valuable to the people who have the questions that Schaefer and Lewis are <laughs> answering, but they actually don't work for others. I I, I remember when I read uh, Schaefer, I, I loved his stuff, but it just didn't resonate with me. It wasn't it wasn't actually hitting the spot for me, and and I was always looked at a little bit strangely by the by the older group as though somehow. Either I was missing what Schaefer was saying, <laughs> but I yes. felt like it just it, these just weren't the questions that I was asking. You know, they, 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 it wasn't what was relevant to me and to others. The difference in our ages is enough to explain, you know, yeah, I grew up in late modernity and people uh, 10 years younger than me and more, more and more of them were growing up in a different, uh, a different environment entirely. By the way, if people are interested, the one place where if you want to read C.S. Lewis, and see that he actually saw what was going on. He wrote a book called The Discarded Image. It was a book about literary criticism. And what it really was, was about the medieval paradigm, the medieval scientific paradigm. And if anyone ever is interested, I actually summarized this in a book I wrote called The New Kind of Christian. But C.S. Lewis actually makes it clear he gets it in that, in that book. Uh, but the sad thing is that the Christians who saw C.S. Lewis as their hero, of course, only latched on to the very modernist stuff that he wrote and didn't pay too much attention to that. And of course, we have to remember that C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer, they were just human beings and they were doing the best they could to, to make sense of the world and the faith. And they did a phenomenal job. I mean, both of them really grappled deeply with the questions of their, of their age. And in that grappling, just modeled a way for other people to Yes, that's right. And, and in fact, it was one of the things I loved about Francis Schaeffer, as he said, when he was in Europe as a missionary, 
he, he doubted his faith as well. And uh, one of the joys of my life and, and, you know, that I never could have guessed back then is that Francis's son, Frank, has become a dear friend of mine and you know, tells me more of what was going on behind the scene. And, uh, and of course, he's written about it as well in, in some of his hilarious and insightful books. But you realize that the, all of these people were human beings. And of course, C.S. Lewis gave us a window in his book, uh, A Grief Observed, or in the book about uh, him, A Grief Observed. Um, and uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, his, his letters, I think, were A Grief Observed. And then uh, I forget, some mm -hmm. other people mm -hmm. wrote about when the woman that he loved which is another whole interesting story, you know, because when a bachelor falls in love, a lot of their ideas change too. Um, <laughs> That's true. Uh, but, uh, and, and I think she was a communist. I mean, it's such an interesting story, but, um, you know, he, he had <laughs> yes. life experiences yes. that affected him. And of course, we learned from Frank that Francis had a lot of emotional problems and temper problem and his marriage was not a happy marriage in many ways. And uh, so all, all that's to say, we're all human beings working this stuff out. And that's one of the myths that I think is really good for us to break through this idea that, oh, some people have it all figured out. I mean, I don't know how many more famous religious leaders we have, we have to have fall into scandal to let us know that, you know what, the people who claim to have all the answers and be so sure of things they're just human beings too. We're all we're all in this together. I mean, that veneer is so thin, but it's so incredibly powerful. It seems to be a fresh generation or even a fresh cadre of of leaders that keep coming forward to reinforce the idea that if you just behave or speak or act or think in a certain way, then you will actually be able to grasp the objective ultimate truth and hold it in one hand and actually wield it quite powerfully. Yes, and I guess for for those who've had those uh, experiences of falling down, um, you know, I think of Richard Rohr's falling upward uh, in terms of you know the second half of life, and and those of us who've had traumatic experiences, etc. The, the veneer shatters quite quickly. Well, you know, and and I one of the kind of one of the insights of my adult life, which I guess is also it's it has some roots in postmodern thought, but also increasingly deep roots in just psychology and social psychology is that thinking itself is a social act um, that I when I think inside my own head I'm not talking to anybody I'm locked away in a room I think I'm still thinking with all of the taboos and requirements of the groups to which I uh, on which I hang my identity and and to whom I belong and so um you know, if I have a thought that my group I know will reject, I'm sure my blood pressure goes up. In other words, there's part of their thinking that I've absorbed that I then use to monitor my own thinking. And um, I write, I, I have a book uh, that's coming out in January uh, in, in South Africa. It will be under the title, uh, it's under the title Faith, Faith After Doubt with, um, with Hotter Faith. And uh, in that book, I try to grapple with this, why doubt is so difficult. And one of the reasons is it's not just a personal reorientation, even though that is real, but the social dimensions of it are super far reaching. So um, the, uh, uh, the other probably episode I, I, I should probably share is that 
so I ended up becoming a pastor in 1982. This little church started. I left um, teaching in 1986 to work full time at a church. And around 1990, I, uh, a lot of people were coming to our church who were not from religious backgrounds or, you know, maybe they'd been baptized as Catholic. And then, you know, once they were hit confirmation, they never went back or whatever. And they would come to me and start asking all their questions. And I realized, oh, that way of thinking I encountered in graduate school, you know, in the early 1980s or uh, late 1970s, it was now on the street. And uh, I realized, uh, I, I, am I going to have the courage to grapple with this, both for myself and for the people who are coming to see me? Because I, I could not in good conscience just parrot the answers I'd been given to the very deep questions they were asking. I, I, it, if I tried to do that, they just felt like, you know, dust in my mouth. I mean, I just felt dishonest. Uh, so that, that really opened up really the whole ni uh, 1990s were my decade of then as a pastor having to just acknowledge that the problems here run very, very deep. And it wasn't like I solved those problems at some point. It's partly that I learned to live with them, partly that I was freed from some constraints that allowed me to live with more openness. And, uh, and you know, and, and I'm sure there were elements of answers too. For example, if you've been taught that the only way to read the Bible is um, is with a kind of wooden literalism, you find out, no, actually, you can read the Bible literarily instead of literally, and there, it's it's an even better book, you know, so. I love the, the point you raised, Brian, in terms of, um, you know, the social nature of our thinking. And I forget which of our previous guests, Tim can probably remind me, who talked about a theological and an ecclesiological deconstruction. It might've been uh, David Hayward, the naked pastor. You know, and it makes me think of that in, in, in terms of, you know, how people um, break away from their communities, but also seek other communities. And so I'm just interested, you talked earlier about these mentors. Was, were those people that you looked to surround yourself with? Did you seek out these mentors or was it sort of a providential occurrence or did they seek out you? How did that, that guidance in your process happen? That's another really interesting question. So the first one that I'm thinking of, his name was Dave, and he sought me out and he took me under his wing. And I really was trying to stay away from him, but he was very persistent. And and uh, it, it ended up being a, a really meaningful and important friendship. But in the years that followed, I, you know, for example, some years later, he he was so disappointed in me. He just thought I'd... Uh, so that didn't, you know, uh, he, he uh, yeah, he, he saw me as an opponent of what he believed in. Um, but through the years, I, I would realize this person has helped me. I'm eternally grateful for them. That's how I feel about this fellow. Um, and, uh, and I would keep my eyes open um, for people who I felt had the next piece of the puzzle that I needed. Another name that I won't mention because he probably would rather not be associated with me. But um, the, there is this one fellow, he has, I think to this day, he probably has no idea. He was a seminary professor. And I, uh, I called his secretary and made an appointment to see him. And I drove four hours for a lunch appointment. And I don't think he had any idea that I'd driven four hours to see him and then got in my car and drove four hours back. But that's how desperate I was to talk to somebody who I felt 
uh, understood the questions I was asking. And uh, so, and, and really that continues right up until today. I, you know, I'm, I'm 63, but boy, I'm glad for, I've got a few friends in their seventies and eighties who I feel like uh, they're still showing me how to grow up a little more. When you talk about that, there's 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 a there's a real sense that there's there's a whole wealth of experience that is that is hidden behind that simple answer that you give. You know, I, I imagine that being in a more conservative environment, perhaps even a more fundamentalist environment, to start to to even open to the questions that come from a postmodern world or a postmodern framework, is it can be seen as a severe betrayal. Did you experience a lot of backlash? Did you experience a lot of um, black relational angst and pain? You know, what was that, what was that experience like oh, for you? <laughs> so I should tell you the, the first thing, super fortunately, I mean, I, I am just grateful, again, to other people who helped me so much in this. But in my church, I had a lot more freedom than a lot of people would have had. Here I am, the pastor, and I'm having these questions. I'll just tell you a quick anecdote in this regard. I was, we were about to go away for a retreat with like 20 of our top leaders, uh, you know, uh, staff and lay leaders. And, um, and before the retreat, a member of my leadership team um, met with me and he said, look, Brian, you're asking these questions. You're, and he said, we have to decide, are we as a church on this journey with you or is this your problem? And, and you know, are you dealing with this alone? And I said, that's a really great question, but look, let's not deal with that on this retreat because we have so many other urgent, you know, issues. And that's like super, you know, profound and deep for us. So at the retreat, against my wishes, he brought up this question. And to my surprise, the group there said, we're on this journey too. This isn't just your journey. You don't have to hide it from us or pretend you're not on this journey. Well, what, that, that didn't make my life easy um, in the sense that, but, but it made my profession possible. You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, it's, it's hard enough to be asking questions, but then to think I might get fired for asking these questions. And my community said, no, we trust you. We, we want you to ask these questions. We're asking these questions too. Well, not everybody in my church was. And so I had a lot of people who distrusted me and and who were angry and felt betrayed. And, and of course, one by one, they left. And each one who left, you know, took a little bit of, you know, I mean, it hurts. Any pastor knows it, people when they leave, you don't want to become the kind of pastor who says good riddance. You know, you, you want to feel, you, you, you feel a bond to them. And, and so that hurts. But, um, but uh, I was fortunate that I at least felt I had a base of support in my congregation. And again, I have so many wonderful people to be grateful to for that. But what happened to me is because I had a bit of a reputation in the evangelical world, my first few books had been published. Um, I ended up with a group of evangelical, I call them gatekeepers, uh, who decided I was persona non grata. And uh, so I, you know, evangelicalism isn't exactly it isn't a denomination that has formal structures. So excommunicate, excommunications happen informally, but um, I learned they don't just happen accidentally. There are, are people who say, we've got to get rid of the guy. And it, so, it, it, it really is the, the original cancel culture as I see it. It's so true. It is so true. I'll, I'll tell you a funny, funny story. We, we have a, you know, I, I don't know, how, I, I'm not that involved in the evangelical 
world here anymore. I'm just so uh, sort of disgusted with how it's sold out to Donald Trump and all the rest. But um, but uh, there was a very influential, prestigious magazine still exists here called Christianity Today. And I did writing for, uh, I was a columnist for one of their publications. And um, and one of the editors called me one day. I still remember I was sitting at my desk at, in my, you know, my, my, my office. And he said, Brian, I just need to tell you, uh, you know, I and several others here really appreciate your work and I want you to keep writing for us. But I just came out of an editorial meeting and one of my colleagues said, uh, he said, and I quote, I'm out to destroy McLaren. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, so watch your back, you know. And uh, so you find out that there are, wow. you know, that there are people who uh are invited to write mm. negative articles about you and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, and, and of course that enhances the reputation of the person who writes the negative article and uh, all the rest. So those, these things happen and it's not unique to Christianity. This happens in businesses and happens in clubs and you know, it happens everywhere. So it's a, it's a human problem of rivalry and so on. And the, the challenge for me was, uh, you know, I, when you're a young man and you have children and you're worried about your, you're worried about your income and providing for your family. And, you know, all of us are born with an ego and I, my ego is threatened by that, you know? And so then you, you enter a new level of challenge in my response to, in, in other words, you do more harm to yourself in the way you respond to these kinds of attacks than the attacks could ever do. And, um, I, uh, again, was very fortunate to have a couple of mentors who gave me some really good guidance in, in dealing with that. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you speak a lot about, um, uh, about the, the kind of tension that people experience in their deconstruction. You know, um, yeah, I remember one of the images that you've used is the one of the funnel of how people standing on one side they don't understand what the faith could look like on the other side, you know, what life could look like. And then they go through this, there's this period of just being ground and pressured and everything. But then there's a certain point that they come to, we're standing on the other side, they look back and they don't know how they ever lived, you know, where they were. <laughs> and, and that's, that's always been a phenomenal image. And, and, and when I first, when I first read that and, and interact with you around it, I, I always had the sense that there's a lot more behind this personally. And, um, you know, back in those days, there was never, there, there was an opportunity to really pursue that. I think one of the interesting things that is, that, that has potentially just changed about culture is, is, is just how relational the world has become, you know, that it's not, yes, people are sharing ideas and they're sharing questions, but, but the actual, the almost the gravitational center has very much shifted from ideas and there with opinions and ideas that divide to almost going, those ideas are less important than the relational integrity we have and the quality of relationship that we can have and ideas can change. We can wrestle through them, but there's a relationship here and there's a person behind them. And just that sense of, of, of opening up as people to people, I think is just one of the hallmarks of the cultural change as, as I see it. Uh, you know, is that something that you see as well? Well, I, I, I think that's beautifully said. You know, going back to that idea that thinking is a social act, when you're part of a group where everyone at least publicly thinks the same way, uh, I find uh, I, the way I say it sometimes is I'm thinking in molasses, <laughs> meaning it's like I, I'm, I'm trying to get through some thick, you know, opposition in my own mind. 
Um, and then you find one or two other people who, with whom it is safe to speak freely and who are asking similar questions and who've read those books that you haven't yet read. And, and, um, and can I just say, and I, I'm not just saying this to flatter you, but I really think podcasts are playing a super significant role in this. When I was asking these questions in the 1970s and 1980s and 1990s, as, as I was able and uh, uh, courageous enough to face some of these questions, as I was grappling with them, I literally had, you know, I had to drive four hours to find one person who I thought was asking the same question. So but what happens now through the internet and through podcasts and so on is people find it, oh, I'm not the only one. And they can find that out so much more quickly. And as soon as they find it out, there's just boatloads of resources to help them. And I think that will change, that is in the process of changing so much. It loosens, it, it reduces the power of those gatekeepers because if they start saying, if you ask that question, if you talk about that, if you change your thought on that, you're kicked out. People start saying, why would I want to be in a community that's going to kick me out for that? <laughs> I've, yeah. got these, I've got these other mm -hmm. much nicer people who I can be in conversation with over here. So Conversation and relationships, they, they almost lubricate these ideas. They 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 feed them. They, they, they give them life in a way that... Um, that that you don't get in isolation. One of the things that I've loved about this as a medium is is just is just the chance to to engage. You know, in, in writing, you don't get the same. You don't. You know, there's there's some people like you that just write brilliantly, <laughs> and then there's other people like me that I mean, no one's going to read my stuff, right? <laughs> but but when it comes to relationship and conversation. There's there's a lot more interaction that can that that can take place, and you can tease out ideas, and you can you can almost have that that interactive bit. So so you can have something that you want to communicate, but there's a depth behind it that you don't necessarily feel that you need to communicate. But when other people feel that and they tap into that, it just enriches the conversation uh, and makes it just much deeper, and 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 it gives it a fullness. That I think that I think is just incredible. I, I really think that the future is interactive in that sense. Yes, yes, and the kind of questions you both are asking are also personal narrative questions. You're asking me how was my experience in this, and it changes everything. You know, in some ways, the one of the central postmodern insights is that behind every statement there's a story. Uh, so somebody, whether it's a statement in a creed or a theological statement or any statement in the Bible. That statement didn't just float down out of the sky. It, it's, it's part of an argument. It's somebody answering something. It's somebody worried about something and trying to counteract it. It's somebody trying to correct something they see that's hurting people. And, and it won't be the last word. <laughs> so <laughs> when, when you realize that statements have stories behind them, then suddenly the stories mm. become uh, deeply, uh, deeply important. And then you, and in some ways, one of the definitions of deconstruction is telling the story behind something. Uh, so uh, you, any word that has a definition, that word has a story of how it developed. And, and, and of course, the same is true for any person, right? Uh, we, there are stories of how we became who, who we currently are.